Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If this is your first time ever tuning in, welcome. We're so glad you found us. This is a place where real women share real stories of real hope. The stories vary from the very lighthearted to the intensely heavy, and we have everything in between. But all these stories are shared to remind you, our listeners, that you are not alone and that no matter what, there is hope. Tonight's episode features the recording from our most recent live event where Rhea shared her amazing story of finding healing and joy after years of darkness. Please be advised that this story includes very mature topics and potential emotional triggers. So please listen however and whenever is best for you, but be encouraged that there is a happy ending. For safety and privacy reasons, Rhea has changed all of the names of the people in her story. If you'd like to watch the video version of the event, which includes all of the introductory and closing portions of the event, just click on the link in the episode notes. For this audio version, we will pick up the recording at the opening song, which was performed by Jamie, Rhea, and Rhea's daughter. Stay tuned at the end of her story for some more information about Rhea's current work to help others. Now, please enjoy the recording of Rhea's Story Night from October 12th, 2023. I've carried I'm done with the hiding, 
no reason away. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again and again. Oh, 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 again and again. been in your sights long before my first breath and running into your arms is running to life from death and I feel this fresh deep in my chest your mercy is calling out just as I am, Lord, you pull me in, and I know I need you now. And my heart has been in your sights long before my first breath. And running into your arms is running to life from death. And I feel this rush deep in my chest. Your mercy is calling out just as I am. Lord, you pull me in. And I know I need you now. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. No reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend, so I'll run to the Father again and again. I run to the Father, I fall into grace, I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart found a surgeon, my soul found a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again and again. Oh, 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 again and again. Oh, 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 again and again. song if you haven't heard it before. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, normally all the musicians are dismissed, but not tonight. Um, we're only dismissing one of you. <laughs> we're keeping these other two ladies up here because this beautiful young woman is going to be introducing our speaker. She knows her pretty well. She's her daughter. I'm a little nervous, so I'm sorry if I mess up. But... To my beautiful mom, I hope you know how proud I am of you, everything you've done, and the woman that you've become. I hope you know how proud I am to call you my mom, my best friend, and my wingman. Thank you for giving me a life full of memories that I will cherish forever. Thank you for turning the darkness into light, never giving up, and thank you for loving me. Growing up, I never would have thought 
you would be here telling your story, not as a victim, but as a survivor. I've watched how hard you've worked over the years to get to where you are now. I've watched you try and try again, no matter how many times you felt like you failed, you got back up. It may not seem that big to others, but they don't know what it's like to be you. You've been through so much, yet in the 15 years I've been alive, you never failed to make me feel loved. You stayed strong for me when no one else was there to be strong for you. You loved me even when you felt like no one loved you. You fought for me when no one else was there fighting for you. And you always wiped away my tears when you had to wipe away your own. You are my hero, and to me, all your small victories have been big accomplishments. Thank you for showing me God's love. Thank you for showing me his faith. Now, it's my honor to introduce you to this room of wonderful women so they can get a glimpse into the woman I am proud to call my mom. <laughs> tears. Ah, good evening. Who's excited to be here? I'm so excited to be here and uh, what I'm going to talk about isn't super exciting and joy-filled and happy, but I am as a person. So I just want to start with a little bit of energy, right? <laughs> Get a little bit of energy. Yeah, anybody wants to know about cold plunging, I'm happy to talk to you about it. <laughs> but seriously, thank you so much for choosing to spend your Thursday night with me. We come together as women to hear each other's stories. And I think it's absolutely amazing what Jessica does. Tonight there might be some tears, some anger, and maybe even some healing as hopefully you feel less alone after hearing my story. I want to take you on a journey through the most impactful parts of my life. The journey's messy, sometimes disjointed. There's curves and dark valleys, bridges, detours, dark tunnels, and a few smooth paths. I was lost and my voice was silenced early on. I didn't think I'd ever find my way back or rediscover my voice, but stay with me, and we're going to find our way back to deliverance and light at the end of this. Before I kind of get into this, Jessica already gave a trigger warning. As we sit and listen to hard things, or even myself as the speaker, as I'm talking about these hard things, our nervous systems sometimes hold on to this. And you might need to let it go. <laughs> I might need to let it go. So please feel free to cry, laugh, take a deep breath. And if I see any of you taking a deep breath, that will remind me to also <laughs> do that. So. As I prepared for this, my memories were all over the place. I have some very clear memories and some that are super fuzzy. Some I can't even remember what year they happened. I'm going to do the best I can, make it easy to follow through my story. But if you get lost, well, welcome to the club. I'll be right there with you. One of my clearest memories is from a terrifying day when I was 15 years old. That's me at 15. I saw the knife flash as he pressed it against me. Cold, hard, silver steel that I couldn't feel because my entire body was numb with fear. I don't want to. Please don't make me. I pleaded with Bose, a man 10 years older than me who was telling me what to do while he drove. 
I peeked at the speedometer, 80 miles an hour. Then I glanced out the window, weighing my options. I could jump from the car, but right beside me, there was a steep downhill patch of dry grass with cars racing by the other direction. If I survived jumping, I'd likely tumble into oncoming traffic as it sped by. All right, so how did I end up here? I've often asked myself the exact same question. I was a teen, he was a man. He was the predator and I was the prey. I was naive and he easily manipulated me using my fear and his power. He was stronger and he had groomed me for months. He had taken what little voice I had left and silenced it. How did I start losing my voice in the first place? I was born into a good Christian family. My mom and dad were those parents who kissed in front of their kids all the time, drawing a chorus of ew from the three of us. We dressed up and went to church every Sunday and we were pretty sheltered. I was smack dab in the middle of a brother two and a half years older and a sister two and a half years younger. They were both very high energy kids. I, on the other hand, was shy and reserved until age 13. Look at that face. If looks could kill. <laughs> My mom used to call me the quiet child. Anyone who knows me now would laugh trying to imagine me being shy or quiet. When I was four years old, they bought a home on a half acre right next to the edge of the country. It was in that home that I had my first memories of learning to play piano, making mud pies, drinking from the garden hose, anybody? <laughs> and climbing up the doorway frames barefoot. If you've never tried that, you've got to try it. Well, maybe not, actually your body might revolt like mine did. <laughs> this is also the house where I have my first memories of losing my ability to stand up for myself and have my voice be heard. When I was five, my brother decided that he was fed up with all the attention I was getting, I guess. He began doing naughty things and blaming them on me. My mom started believing him, and to my knowledge, she never considered that I might actually be telling the truth, no matter how much I tried to tell her. My young mind interpreted this to mean that it didn't really matter if I used my voice because I wouldn't be heard. Eventually, more disturbing things happened, and my parents, thinking that I was causing all of these problems, decided to send me to go live with my Aunt Wanda for a month. This is my Aunt Wanda. By that time, I'd already learned to silence my voice, and I believed that it was pointless to try to stand up for myself. At five years old, being dropped off at someone else's house made me feel like I had done something that made me unlovable, unvalued, unimportant. This made a huge impact in my young mind. These kinds of beliefs formed so young create pathways that run really, really deep, and they stay with you until you do the hard work to change them. One month later, I moved back home. I guess I was cured. I have almost no memories from the time that I was five until 12. My mom tells me that I accepted Christ into my heart at age five, but I don't have an actual memory of this. Nonetheless, prayer, scripture, and church were a really big part of my life growing up. My youngest sister was born when I was 12, and around that time, my parents started fighting a lot, kind of ignoring us kids. My siblings and I took over much of the care for our baby sister, and we were unsupervised much of the time and could hang with whoever we wanted to. My friends were not a good influence. I met my first boyfriend before I ever started high school, and uh, I had lost my virginity by the time I was 13. My mom found out eight months later and forbade me from seeing him. With my parents all but ignoring me, I quickly started seeking attention from other boys. I learned that guys give you attention if you dressed in skimpy clothes, and they gave you even more, although short-lived, if you slept with them. One night when I was 13, my brother snuck into my room and asked if I wanted to try smoking pot. 
He was my older brother, and I looked up to him, so I said, heck yeah. I didn't know that this was the beginning of a dangerous dance with drugs. One of my brother's friends was named Jason and lived just a few houses down. He was bored one day, and my brother wasn't home, so he asked if I wanted to smoke some stuff. It was meth. I didn't bother to ask if it was bad for me. I had no idea of all the hazardous and poisonous chemicals it's made from, how addictive it would be, or how it melts holes in your brain that can never be fully repaired, causing complications like short and long-term memory issues at age 40. I didn't know that it might entirely change my morals and character, and I would do mortifying things because of it. All I knew is that it numbed all of my pain and made me feel like Superwoman. I was hooked. But the drugs didn't stop there. The first time my brother and I tried acid, which is very different from the meth that I was hooked on, we each took five hits. And if you know anything about acid, that's a lot. It did crazy things to my brain. While I was what they call frying, I played the piano like I'd never played before, watching my hands fly over the keys as if they weren't attached to my body. My fingers morphed as they played, and I have no idea what it honestly sounded like, but in my acid-fried state, I thought it was perfect. I also looked in the mirror, which you're not supposed to do, and was horrified at the sight of my own face melting off of my head. I probably would have clawed it to bits if my mom hadn't walked in and intervened. Then I wandered outside to lay on my back in the middle of our busy highway next to our house. It is a miracle no cars happened to be driving down the highway before my sister pulled me off the road to safety. Have I sold you on taking acid yet? It's not a good idea. Two days later, I sobbed for hours as I came down and my body adjusted back to sobriety. Well, somewhat adjusted. I know now that acid can mess you up permanently. I still see movement in the walls and the ceiling if there's any sort of design, and sometimes when I look up at the clear blue sky. But now, I like to look at it as a blessing. It's a reminder of just how far I've come. I spent the next four years until I turned 17 high on meth and other drugs, barely home. I dropped out of high school and went home only to hug my sister and get clean clothes, avoiding my parents as much as possible. I stayed on people's couches, I went home with guys I didn't know, I caught myself in a world of hurt. It's a miracle I'm still alive. I sometimes wonder if God was just up there shaking his head all the things I got myself into that he had to get me out of. The Bible says in Psalm 139 that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. But sometimes I wonder if I gave God a run for his money. At the time, I didn't understand why I was running away, trying to numb my pain. As a helpless child, I hadn't been taught any of that, and when I tried to speak up for myself, it had been ignored, shut down, or disrespected. When your voice is silenced, it sets the stage for others to take control over you. The first time I remember being sexually abused, I was 14. A man, no, scratch that, he wasn't a man, he was a boy, an 18-year-old boy that I had decided to go hang out with. He had drugged my drink. I was downstairs in a cold, dark, concrete basement when I realized what he was doing. I told him to stop, but he didn't. Somehow, I pushed him off of me and ran upstairs to get the heck out of there. But the night wasn't over yet. My boyfriend came to pick me up, and he'd been drinking. I didn't tell him that the other guy had forced himself on me. I was scared he'd blame me, so I kept quiet. In my boyfriend's drunken stupor, he tore down the freeway and went 90 miles an hour around the corner. The next thing I knew, we slammed into a guardrail. The crash was ear-shattering, and the back window disintegrated. Glass rained down all over my back, and my boyfriend yelled, Get out of the car! Run! And we fled the scene because he didn't want to be caught drinking and driving. After so much adrenaline, I was completely beat. The hardest part of that night was that my boyfriend still wanted to have sex with me when we got back to the house. 
This is the part where I wish someone had told me that it's okay to say no. Even if it's your boyfriend or your fiance or your husband, no one should coerce you or pressure you into doing something you don't want to do. Eventually, at some point during my teenage years, my mom hit her wit's end with me. After a few years of me running away and using street drugs, she called on my Aunt Wanda again to help. And once away, I was shipped off to live with her. That's me right after I moved into my new bedroom at her house and my sister. Perhaps my mom saw no other option, but it stung to feel like she didn't want me, like she was abandoning me all over again. I got lucky, though. My Aunt Wanda was amazing. She gave me more positive attention than I had had in a very long time, spoke life into me in the form of empowering words, but also had strict rules. The love that came from her and my Uncle Paul were life-changing for me and have stuck with me to this day. I moved back after several months, and that's when I met Bose. Bose told me that he was 18, and as a naive 15-year-old, I had believed him. I'd find out later that he was 25 and much more cunning than anyone I'd ever met. By that time, it didn't matter. I was too far in. I don't remember the first time that we hung out, but I do remember the first time he raped me. I didn't know at the time that it was rape. There doesn't have to be violence for it to be rape. I'm going to say that again. There doesn't have to be violence for it to be rape. The first time I knew that my voice didn't hold any power was when Bose gently forced himself on me in a stranger's house. He was doing things I didn't want him to do. I protested. I said no. It didn't matter. I was alone in a house that I didn't know, and I was scared. So I quit protesting. I gave in. It was still rape. I had no voice. Again, how did I get here? Somehow in the beginning, Bose had charmed my mom enough to where she let me leave the house with him over and over and over again. She even took me to visit him in jail once. When I asked her years later why she let me see him, she said, I had insisted that nothing was going on. Moms, I'm going to make a plea to you right now. Never trust that. Trust your gut. If it doesn't seem right to you, no matter how much your child or your teenager begs, put your foot down. You might be saving them from years of pain. I ended up spending the next year and a half seeing Bose. What that really means is that there's many other instances where he forced me to do things I didn't want to do, like the night that I call the worst night. On the worst night, he'd taken me somewhere. He was house-sitting about an hour away from where I lived. Like the first time, I had no idea where I was. That night, he used me as his rag doll for hours and hours, ramping up the pain and adding new things he'd never done while I begged him not to. There was no escape. I was alone with him, and he had the entire night to have his way. Hours after he was finally finished, he told me to go take a shower. I remember shivering in the hot shower, my body in shock, wanting to collapse, but instead standing alert in terrified watchfulness because I knew he would take more drugs and would come in and assault me again. To this day, I hate showers. I have only a few memories of him, even though the relationship went on for 18 months before it finally ended. The last night was almost as bad as the worst night. He fed me meth and then made me go into different banks and case them out. I didn't even realize what I was doing at the time. I was so drugged up. This went on for what seemed like hours. Eventually, while we drove down the freeway at 80 miles an hour, he demanded sexual favors while I contemplated jumping out of the car. But I'd had enough of his abuse of being voiceless, so I refused. That's when he pulled out the knife. But I wasn't ready to die yet, so I gave in. 
one last time. We returned to his place where he gave me more drugs. I sat and watched him load a nine millimeter gun. He kept talking about someone owing him money for drugs. At some point on this night, I witnessed him murder someone, and when at last I tried to leave in my friend's car, he chased us for miles before we finally got away. It was one of the most terrifying rides I've ever had, but at last I was home safe. The next morning, I found my voice again, and I went to the police to report the sexual abuse. I didn't report the murder because my mind had blocked it out. You know what's cool? Our minds are created to be amazing, and they will protect us in any way that they can. By the grace of God, my mind completely blocked the memory of the murder out. Eventually, I ended up leading the FBI to where Bose was. Turns out, after I'd made a police report and turned him in for the sexual abuse, the FBI started looking into him for two murders. My number was on his phone log, so they dialed me in a routine investigative call. I was at the end of my rope, fearful that he was going to hunt me down and do God knows what next after I had denied him and turned him into the police, so I was willing to take them to where he was staying. I'll never forget the look on his face as he was let out in cuffs, looking straight toward the police car that I hid in. To this day, I don't know if he actually saw me or not, and there's a deep-seated fear that comes with that. He's due to get out of prison in the next few years, but my God is bigger than Bo's, and I hold on to that whenever the enemy tries to make me worry about him getting out and coming out after me. Sometimes these stories feel unreal. My memories are so fragmented, some of them completely blocked out. Sometimes it feels like it happened to someone else. It doesn't help that I buried these memories for decades, not wanting to feel the pain, shame, and disgust that accompanied them. Ladies, if something hard has happened to you, I beg you to get help for it sooner than later. A wound that is fresh can be healed somewhat quickly. A wound that isn't taken care of festers and it gets infected, and then that infection has to be cleaned out, dug out, and the healing takes much longer. If you've been through the ringer, I know it can be tempting to put it off. I know life's busy and there's never a great time to go to therapy or seek help, but don't let the infection set in or get worse than it already is. Take the time to deal with it and you'll be so happy that you did. And if you need support, my email address is on those bookmarks. <laughs> I am happy to help support you. A few months after I turned in Bose, I found out I was pregnant with someone else's baby, and I chose to keep my child. I immediately quit all the meth and the other drugs, drinking and smoking, when I saw the positive pregnancy test two days after my 17th birthday. I was a scared teenager whose life completely changed when I gave birth to my sweet baby boy with a head full of crazy hair. I named him Ian. I often say he was my angel baby because God used him to save my life. I turned everything around though as soon as I knew that he existed. My son's father chose to step up and be a dad and for that I am so grateful. To this day he's a big part of my now adult son's life. I quickly moved into his apartment with him and his roommate who were still using drugs. That was one of the harder things that I've done. A teenage girl, pregnant, staying sober while living in the same house with people that were still using. When my son was 18 months old, I decided to go back to high school and get my diploma. I worked my butt off and I finished three years of schooling in 18 months while working three jobs and raising a child. I also had started seeing that my relationship was unhealthy, so I left my son's father and become a single mom. Even though I felt successful, accomplished at everything I'd done since I became pregnant, I still felt lost. I didn't know who I really was. I knew what it was now, though. I still hadn't found my voice. Shortly after school, I met an amazing guy named Martin. 
We became best friends instantly. We hung out all the time, talked and texted each other nonstop. Two years later, I started wondering if he was the one that God had for my life. We'd started talking about our faith and both realized that we had a passion for God and to know God more deeply. And I'd been praying for God to bring the right man into my life. Was this God's plan? Then suddenly, one day, it was all jerked away from me. I met very raw, real grief in a sudden stab to the heart. Okay, here's the thing you need to know about Martin. He had a habit of forgetting his phone in his pocket and running it through the washer on accident. And every time, I'd eventually get a call from an unknown number, and he'd say, hey, I ran my phone through the washer again, so I'm using someone else's phone until I get a new one. So one morning, we were texting, and he suddenly stopped. The hours ticked by, and the next day, I still hadn't heard anything. I dialed the last number that he called me from when he'd washed his phone last, and a guy picked up. I said, hey, Martin isn't answering his phone. Did he run it through the wash again? And I heard the words that knocked the air right out of my lungs, words I'd never considered could even be a possibility. Oh, you haven't heard. Martin was in a car accident. He's gone. I've never been hit so hard with such tragic news. I was in shock, devastated, and so angry. I grieved hard, and I completely lost my passion for God. In my grief, I quickly got into a relationship with the guy who had given me the devastating news. His name was Mal. We moved way too fast, and several months after breaking me down slowly emotionally, he started abusing me. Even though I knew something wasn't right, I stayed because I thought surely our relationship was a reason to make something good out of my best friend's death. I wish I hadn't let that guilt me into staying. I wish I had seen through the lies that the enemy tells. The relationship turned south in a slow bend. If it had happened all at once, perhaps I would have seen it, but it was the tiniest little drip. It started with comments of jealousy. Mal accusing me of looking at another guy, me scrambling to convince him that I only had eyes for him and wondering why he didn't believe me. I truly loved him and I would never do anything like that. It escalated over the course of a year and eventually one day he was screaming at me for not paying his cell phone bill while he was out of state working for a month. I was stunned. It was then that I first contemplated leaving. But a week later, I found out I was pregnant with his child. Now, this is not a good reason to stay in an abusive relationship, but I felt trapped, and he'd already broken me down to where I felt voiceless and incapable once again. Even though I'd given birth to and raised a child when I was but a teenager myself, even though I'd worked three jobs and gone to college full-time while raising my child alone, even though I was perfectly capable, my brain didn't believe it. So I stayed. After the pregnancy news, the abuse progressed. One day, Mal and I got into another argument. I was working 40 hours a week and going to school full-time. He had quit his job and moved into my duplex. I paid the bills and raised Ian, who was about five at this point. Mal played video games until the sun came up and then went to sleep. But on this day, he was mad because he didn't like how messy the house had become in my absence, and he blamed it on me. He said he was going to get a maid to cook, clean the house, and she would also be his bedmate. That hurt. That night, he wallpapered the guest room completely with pictures of scantily or unclothed women. And then he moved out of our room and into that one. It was a power and manipulation technique. Two days later, I went into labor and gave birth to my second son, Zippy. My kids, my kids chose their names. <laughs> That's Zippy. <laughs> 
Um, I want to tell you about his birth and the strength that I had left, though. Even though Mal had made me feel like I wasn't capable of doing anything at this point. Months earlier, in a lighthearted conversation, Mal had told my sister that he didn't think I could go through labor without an epidural. Oh, you don't know her very well, she had said, having all the faith that I 100% could do it. Want to bet he'd shot back? And from that moment on, I was determined to prove him wrong and her right. You do not want to mess with me when I'm determined. My water broke just before midnight, a couple days after Mal had moved out. We packed up and went to the hospital, only to wait and wait and wait for me to dilate. Eventually, they gave me Pitocin, which... If any of you have had this before, you know, because it's synthetic, it does not give the body a break. It made the contractions almost impossible to handle. However, 24 hours later, I gave birth to my second son without any pain meds. (laughs) I went into shock afterward from the pain, shaking the hospital bed so violently that the nurses thought that I would fall off. So I don't recommend this course of action. I didn't bond very well with my son, Z, and to this day, it breaks my heart. Maybe it was the fact that my brain was under an insurmountable amount of stress, living in a bedroom where the wallpaper was naked women, breaking down my self-worth even further. Oh, did I forget to mention that part? Mal wouldn't let my newborn son and I sleep in the master bedroom. He banished us to a mattress on the floor in the magazine room. Again, manipulation and mind games. And it worked. It messed me up. I was sleep-deprived and trying to juggle working full-time while getting up in the middle of the night to make bottles and change diapers. Mal still stayed up till 6 a.m. playing video games. I left for work shortly after he went to bed every morning. Two months later, he had been showing more and more signs of manipulation and abuse. I didn't feel safe, so I decided I was going to leave. I packed up a few things, and I went to my dad's house as my parents were divorced at this point. And then I found out I was pregnant again. What is it about being pregnant that made me think that I couldn't handle things on my own? I still can't figure this out. Many people have asked why I didn't leave sooner. I know I'm not the only one to get that question. It's a difficult question to answer, and one that I still struggle with to this day. And I lived it. You'd think that I'd be able to explain it, but it's not just one simple answer. It's many tiny little things that build up over time. Abusers don't usually break you down all at once. It's a slow process. They wait until you're helpless, dependent on them. They wait until they've manipulated you enough, gaslit you enough, criticized you enough until where you have almost zero self-worth. They wait until they've created enough fear in you that you're terrified to leave. Abuse and danger often increases when the survivors leave. And they engage in a cycle that you're always trying to get back to the good side of, the side where they're nice to you for just a little bit before the abuse starts again. Why I stayed. I stayed because I thought I could change him. I stayed because he told me all the sob stories of how he was damaged from childhood and other women. Because he convinced me that he couldn't help himself, and yet he never abused anyone else. I stayed because my self-worth was lower than low. Because I had kids with him, and he told me he would move to Alaska if I left him and never see his kids again. I stayed because I had no money and nowhere to go. Because he threatened to kill me if I ever left, and I believed him. I stayed because he would turn things to make me feel guilty, like I'd done something wrong whenever I brought up his abuse, and he was so skilled at this that I often believed it. That's what gaslighting is, by the way. Let's talk about this real quick. We don't have time for this, but it's important. 
If you don't know what gaslighting is, it is not lighting someone on fire with gasoline, contrary to how it might sound. According to the American Psychological Association, to gaslight someone means to manipulate another person into doubting their own perceptions, experiences, or understanding of events. They're so good at making you doubt your reality that you begin to believe that you're actually wrong or imagining things even though your gut tells you otherwise. My ex was so manipulative, so fast-talking and believable that, and he had already broken me down for so many years emotionally that I constantly questioned myself. I was confused at what was real and what wasn't. So at 25, I took my two boys and once again returned to Mal and the abuse. Weeks later, I miscarried my child. I vividly remember being in that hospital alone. Mal had screamed at me on the phone when I told him that I was bleeding and thought I was losing the baby. He told me it was my fault because that's what narcissistic abusers do. The day I miscarried, I was alone. I suffered in the hospital alone, received a catheter and IV lines alone, learned that I was losing the baby alone. And then finally he showed up and he took me home. He blamed me. He yelled and screamed at me while I cried silently with searing pain in my abdomen, anguished at the loss. I tried to tell him it wasn't my fault, but he wouldn't listen. He completely controlled what I did for the next three days, taking away the opportunity to properly grieve the loss of my baby while he held me down, wounded me, hurled insults and filthy names. Once again, I had no voice. I often comfort myself, though, with the thought that God was saving that baby from something on earth that might have been too much. That baby got to go straight to heaven. And to me, that's a blessing. There was more grief in store for me. Remember my Aunt Wanda, who took me in twice? She sadly passed away from leukemia when I was 25 and still in the thick of the abuse. She never got to see me leave him, but I'm not sure if she even knew that he was abusive. Most people thought we were happy, and that's typical in an abusive relationship. Over the course of the relationship, there were many instances of physical, emotional, sexual, and financial abuse and manipulation. When he was out of town working, he would send photos or videos of him and another woman in bed. Once I had surgery to remove a lump from my breast, the abuse was so bad at this point that when I woke up, I remember sobbing, begging the doctors to put me back under so that I could sleep. I knew it was the only way that I was going to get any rest. Sure enough, as soon as we returned home, he made me clean the whole house. I learned to take speedy showers because occasionally he'd dump a bucket of ice water on me while I was in the shower. Once back when I was pregnant with my now teenage daughter, he woke me by ripping the covers off my body in the middle of the night. Hovered over me, he didn't touch me, but his large body had me trapped nonetheless. He put his mouth right next to my ear and screamed at the top of his lungs over and over and over again. I was terrified without ever being touched. I thought for sure that I would miscarry from the stress alone, but my girl was strong, and she and I both survived. Even though this incident held no physical abuse, it stands out in my mind as one of the most terrifying experiences that I had in our entire relationship. That is psychological abuse for you. He often used the python squeeze, as he called it, where he'd wrap his arms around my neck and squeeze. He said he was toughening me up, but what he was really doing was showing me that he was more powerful than me. He'd scream at me and call me horrible names in front of the kids. In the end, that's one of the things that kept me from going back again. I was so afraid that my daughter would grow up understanding that she should be treated so horribly or that my sons would learn that behavior and use it. When my boys were six years and 18 months old, I gave birth to my first daughter and named her Brooke. When she was just three weeks old, he made me go to a party at his friend's house. 
Mal had drunk a lot. He had that awful empty stare that he sometimes got when he was blackout drunk. His eyes, darker than usual, looked completely empty, void of all emotion, and stared right through me. On the way home, he had me pull over the truck so he could urinate on the side of the road. When he finished, instead of lobbing his six-foot-two, 400-pound frame into the passenger seat like he usually did, demanding that I drive him, he instead stumbled to the driver's side and yanked out, opened the door. Get out, he said. I'm driving. Not a chance in hell. The kids were strapped safely in the back of the car, but there was no way I was letting him drive. He insisted, but this time my voice was strong, and I held my ground. It was one of the scariest moments of my life. My breath suspended in the air as I waited to see if he would yank me out of the driver's seat. I knew there was a good chance that he would throw me on the gravel and drive off, leaving me alone on the cold, dark, deserted road. I gripped the wheel harder, determined to fight for my kid's safety, and he finally gave in and heaved himself into the passenger seat. I'm not going to lie, I breathed a sigh of relief and I tore out of there before he could change his mind. When we pulled in the driveway, I dutifully took my kids inside one by one by myself. First, the baby in her infant seat, then Z, who was only 18 months old and sound asleep, and then Ian, who at the age of eight had fallen asleep on the car ride home. At some point, Mal started cursing and yelling. I quickly tried to get the kids inside before he woke them, but I didn't miss the reason for his freak out. He had kicked the can of formula that we still used for Z, and somehow the top had popped off. The can burst open, and a cloud of sticky powder covered his precious truck. He was pissed. He would have yelled and cursed at me more, but he was always very careful not to do it in front of people. And even though it was well after midnight, he knew the neighbors might hear. So he fell silent and went inside. I put the boys to bed, and I nursed Brooke on the floor in Z's room. Mal had locked himself in our bedroom. I didn't plan on sleeping in there with him in that state, but I did need a blanket, a pillow, and a few baby things from the room. She was only three weeks old. With Brooke in my arms, I knocked at the bedroom door. No answer. I knocked again, a little louder. Mal, I just need to come get a few things and then I'll leave you alone, I loudly whispered. Surely he couldn't have fallen asleep already. I held up my hand to knock one final time when the door burst open. His fist closed around my neck as he threw me to the side like a rag doll, pinning me to the wall. I watched in slow motion. I saw my hand hover at the door as if it belonged to someone else, as if it had detached from my body. Then I blinked and saw his deranged face twisted into a gnarled glare as he stared right through me. I heard no words, no sounds, just felt the breath leaving my lungs. Shocked, I struggled against him. He was much larger than me, but I was sober and he wasn't. I managed to get away, still holding Brooke in my left arm. I raced for the bathroom door, the only place that I could think of to go that I might be able to lock him out of. But he caught up to me, and he shoved his size 15 shoe in the door as I tried to slam it, still carefully holding my infant daughter. I was no match for him, and he pushed his way into the bathroom. I was cornered with no way out. In the tiny bathroom, he grasped my neck in his hands and squeezed again. As my breath constricted, I felt the edge of the tub behind my legs. I had one thought. If I lose my footing and I fall backward into the tub, there I would not only be able to defend myself far less easily with him towering over me, but also I didn't have the confidence that I'd be able to protect Brooke as I fell into the hard tub. Her tiny body wouldn't be able to take a hit like that. Then without even thinking about it, I heard my voice start to speak. It was raspy. I couldn't get much out as he squeezed my airway closed. Mal, look at your daughter. 
look at your daughter in my arms. You're going to hurt her. He ignored me as though he had heard nothing. I have no idea how, but after what seemed like hours of strangling and pleading, somehow we ended up in the bedroom. Mal pinned me against the bed, and he growled at me. If you don't want her to get hurt, you better put her on the bed. That was the only inkling that I had that he had actually heard me in the bathroom. I quickly set her as far away from me as I could, hoping to get into a position where I could fight him off. But he was faster, and he grabbed my ankles, dragging me back to where he had the most control, with me pinned on my back against the bed and him holding me down with his hand pressed against my throat. With my daughter just feet away from me and my two sons in the other room, I had the very clear thought that if I died, I couldn't protect them. It was then that I started begging for my life. I groveled, saying things that I didn't mean, trying to get through those empty eyes to his soul. It was hard to believe that the man who said he loved me was moments away from taking my life. My words only seemed to make him more angry, and he pressed harder on my throat. Darkness closed in all around me as I struggled to hold on to the light, to the thought of my three precious children close by that needed their mama. But I was no match for him, and everything fell black. When I came to, he had left the room. No sooner had I started to try to sit up and make a plan to run that he barreled through the door again, this time holding our largest kitchen knife. He held it to my throat and he pressed and growled, I could kill you right now if I wanted to. And then he set the knife down on the nightstand, shoved me aside, laid down, and went to sleep. I waited, every muscle in my body tense, afraid to wake the beast until I thought he was well asleep. Then I gathered my baby in my arms and went searching for my keys and my phone. The last thing I wanted to do was stay, but I searched everywhere, and they were nowhere to be found. Exhausted, in shock, and terrified that if he found me rounding up the other kids, he'd certainly kill me, I finally lay down beside my sleeping children. The next day, he calmly walked over to the baby bassinet, this one pictured here, stuck his hand under the mattress and pulled out every set of keys that we owned, and both of our phones. Even in his drunk state, he had trapped me, ensuring that I would stay there. Fear ruled me that night, and for countless days and nights after. The next morning, as I was making breakfast, he started laughing out of the blue. I asked him what was funny, and he said, oh, I'm just thinking about where I'm going to bury your body. This only increased my fear, and sadly, I told no one what had happened that night. And he made numerous similar comments over the remainder of our relationship about killing me. The abuse continued, and I spent the next months frozen in fear, trying to protect myself and my kids, but afraid to leave. At age 27, I had an abortion. I don't talk much about that. I've actually only told a handful of people until now. There's a lot of shame and heartache that comes along with that. Mal made a decision to abort the baby, and by that time, I had learned not to go against what, what he said. Do I regret it? Yes. Do I think that God has grace for me? Absolutely. And I'm being vulnerable and sharing this with you tonight because I want you to know that if you've ever walked through the clinic doors pregnant and walked back out empty, you are not alone. You and I, we don't have to be ashamed or hide our choices because there is no mistake, no sin too big that God can't redeem us. There is nothing we can ever do that will take away his love for us. 
my relationship with God strengthened slowly over the next several years, and eventually I did get my passion back. I left Mao over a dozen times total. By 2008, I had obtained a low-income apartment after being on the waiting list for two years. I'd moved my stuff into one of the times that I thought I was ready to leave. I packed for three children and myself while I was away at work, my heart racing every time I heard a car pull down our gravel driveway, thinking that it was him coming home from work early. Two guys about my age lived across the street and had always shown me kindness. They helped me move some of the heavy furniture. They didn't ask questions, but they could see that I was distressed, and they were very kind. I went to the police station, and I filed a report for the strangulation. I had known that I would need proof since he was so manipulative and charming as most narcissists are. So on one of his month-long business trips during a serious conversation where he actually seemed remorseful, I asked him questions about the night he strangled me and I hit record on my phone. 15 years ago, recording someone in person was inadmissible in court, but there was a loophole. If you recorded them while on a phone conversation, it could be used as proof. By the way, if you are ever in this situation, The best piece of advice I could give you is to document everything. I've helped several women leave abuse that have won court battles and custody battles because of this. Months later, while I was on my way home from a class, I got a call from an unknown number. I still remember the parking lot that I pulled into, shaking violently as the officer told me, we've arrested him. I thought it was over, but it didn't end there. Sadly, I recanted. Because he still had so much control over me and I was so scared, I used the savings I'd been putting away to leave Mal, and I paid for his lawyer. One of my biggest regrets in all this. The advocate that I spoke with knew I was lying, but couldn't do anything about it. Mal ended up spending only a month in jail with work release. Because I was still deep in the cycle, I broke the no-contact order when he begged me to secretly come back and live with him. He went through 24 months of court-ordered classes, and charmed the teacher, abusing me all along while making me sign things for his instructor, saying that he was a changed man. I know this sounds crazy, but I kept waiting for the right time to leave. Waiting until I had enough money, a place to go, or waiting until he had another explosion so I'd have a reason to leave. He was so manipulative and so good at gaslighting me that he literally convinced me I was in the wrong after he'd abused me. Even years after I left him, he still blamed me for the night that he almost killed me. He said if I hadn't left the baby formula on the floor and kept knocking on the door to try to get my bedding, that he wouldn't have gotten angry and thrown me into a wall, strangled me, or held a knife to my throat. Isn't that crazy? He was such a fast talker, and any time he was to blame, he quickly shifted it. So I knew that if I left while things were in a good cycle, he'd make me feel guilty for it, and that's why I kept waiting for things to get bad enough for me to feel justified in leaving. I'm sharing all this because I want to help people understand domestic violence just a little bit better. The turning point in my abusive relationship came in May of 2010. This particular day, Mal was upset with Ian for who knows what. He railed on my son, hitting him over and over again with a belt. I screamed and got in this way, got in his way. By this point, Mal was completely out of control, sweating and spitting, flailing around. The belt fell over and over again on my son and I, and Ian had to wear long sleeves for weeks to hide the bruises. I get sick to my stomach even thinking about that abuse. That was the last straw for me. I began making plans in secret to get back to my own apartment and leave him for good. What my son went through was horrifying. I desperately regret not getting all of us out of there sooner. 
When I was finally out, I, re I obtained a restraining order. Sadly, Mal contested it, and our court date was scheduled on a day when I had pneumonia and a fever of 102 degrees. Lawyerless and barely conscious, I didn't make a very convincing defendant. The judge threw out the restraining order. I was totally unprotected and devastated. But little did I know that God had a bigger plan, which I will come back to later. September 2010. I was a 28-year-old single mom with three kids and little income. Reimer was a mechanic who had been my neighbor for years while I was in that hell. Remember the two guys that helped me move? He was one of them. I was in a bind. I had just left my abuser again. This time, though, I was sure I wasn't going back. Mal had been using his best manipulation tactics, shutting off my bank cards and my phone, trying to control me in any way that he could. But I knew this time had to be different. I had to be strong. I would not put myself or my kids in that abusive environment anymore. So when my 1995 Volkswagen Golf started having trouble and would barely even make it up a small hill, I pulled from my strength and creativity. I had almost no money, but I knew a mechanic. I reached out to Reimer and I asked for help. Little did I know he'd had his eye on me for years. <laughs> he spent a couple hours looking under the hood of my car and then informed me, you need to get a new car. <laughs> we were babies. A few weeks later, we went on our first unofficial date at a comedy club. Afterward, we went bowling, and it struck me how, while I flirted shamelessly with him, he was not the typical overeager, sleazy guy trying to get me in bed that I was familiar with from my past experiences. He was ever the gentleman, respectful, and took things slow, which ultimately attracted me to him even more. Shortly after that, my grandpa passed away, and since I had bonded quickly with my new, kind, uber-supportive boyfriend of two whole weeks, I asked Reimer to come with me and drive the five hours to where the service was held. I mean, that doesn't sound crazy at all, right? Hey, he was crazy enough to say yes. I arranged for my kids to stay at their dad's house, telling Mal that my grandpa had passed, but not that Reimer would be coming with me. Mal had visitation rights that week anyway, so it all worked out. Reimer and I made the drive, attended the funeral, he met my family. A couple hours later, I got a call from Mal. He told me he would not be returning my kids to me. He had kidnapped them. I cannot begin to describe the feelings that I had. It was the longest five-hour drive I have ever experienced in my life. My kids were gone, and I felt completely helpless. I learned that since I hadn't obtained any sort of custody order in the two short weeks since leaving Mal, it wasn't officially kidnapping. Apparently, we actually had 50-50 rights to the kids, and since there was no order in place, the cops could do nothing. The next week was absolute hell. I barely slept, hardly ate, agonizing over what Mal would do. Would I ever see my kids again? I spent hours at the courthouse filing paperwork and talking to lawyers. Those were probably the single most terrifying days of my life, and I've been through some stuff. Eventually, a couple weeks later, just as I was closing in on obtaining the protective order, Mal returned the kids to me. After that, Reimer and I dated for two years, but trouble still followed me. During that time, Mal stalked me and tracked my phone. It's hard to describe the terror that flooded my body, realizing this man, who had almost killed me one point and openly fantasized about killing me several times, was watching my every move. Being stalked is terrifying, and it leaves the victim in a constant state of hyper-awareness, which to this day, I still have trouble shaking. For 18 months, though, I worked on finding my voice. I kept notes and records, pictures, and even video of every time he followed me or stalked me. Stalking orders are incredibly hard to get in this state, and the difficulty is doubled if you have kids together. 
I gathered enough witnesses, though, that the judge granted a protective stalking order. Remember that restraining order? That one that I got thrown out when I had pneumonia? It ended up being a blessing in disguise because with a restraining order, you have to prove every 12 months that there is still fear enough or threat in order to keep it active. With a stalking order, it's in place for life. I will never have to go back to court to renew that order. See, God knew there was a greater plan. Several months later, a judge ordered visitation rights for Mal. Sadly, Mal abused my kids either psychologically, verbally, or physically over the next several years on nearly every visit. But my voice was getting stronger. When my two youngest kids were just six and seven years old, they began coming home from weekend visits at their dad's house and telling me that in his anger, Mal had pushed my son's head into a rock so hard that he thought his head would burst, locked him outside in the cold of winter for a couple hours with nothing but a t-shirt on, and choked my six-year-old around his neck to the point where his feet lifted off the ground. I made tons of DHS reports, but my children got scared when they were questioned by a stranger, and Mal lied every time, so DHS could do nothing. Then one day, he hit my daughter with a shoe and it made a mark. This time, the DHS worker did something about it. What followed was a nine-month battle to get and keep my kids safe. In August of 2015, after eight long hours in court fighting for my kids, I finally obtained a protective order. He could no longer see his kids unsupervised until he took responsibility for his actions, attended some classes, and did counseling with the kids. Sadly for my kids, none of this has happened. After a few months of paying for supervised visitation, he just stopped. It's been roughly eight years since my kids have been seen their dad unsupervised, and I haven't received any proof of progress yet. I no longer have bitterness or anger about this, except when I see the pain on my teenagers' faces as they feel the ache of not being important enough for him to do the work. That's the hard part. Regardless of all the drama that had been going on, in August of 2012, Reimer and I got married. We had dreamy-eyed visions of filling the void in each other's lives that both of our toxic exes had left. At our wedding, we played God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. And we truly believed we were going to fill the hole in each other's hearts and meet the needs that others had neglected. We had high hopes and higher expectations. But humans cannot fill the void that is meant to be filled by God. And you cannot truly receive love from someone until you have learned to love and accept yourself but we didn't understand any of these things at the time. It's difficult for me to pull one memory from the last 13 years of our relationship to tell you about. I want to be able to paint you a picture. The problem is that by the time I got in a relationship with my husband, I had so much backlog trauma taking up space in my brain that the memories didn't store well. So rather than trying to paint you a picture, I'm going to just try and describe how I felt. Maybe this resonates with some of you. Maybe you've had things in your life that you've gone through that you just couldn't quite explain to someone. I felt alone, like I had no one, no support, no one who understood what I was going through. I felt abandoned by my husband. I felt sad all the time. I felt nonstop fear and was hyper aware, always looking over my shoulder. My brain was a constant tornado that I could never come down from. I felt like I was drowning, like I was spinning out of control. And when I was triggered, I felt unsafe. The toxicity in our marriage built up slowly. It's hard to say when things started going south. My husband and I were both in survival mode because of our exes. Add it all together and it's a recipe for stress and disaster. Here's a few of the challenges that we faced. 
Mal stalked me for almost two years. I had multiple court dates that I had to prepare for involving protection orders, child custody, and later child protective orders. My husband completely changed careers from mechanic to firefighter a couple years into our marriage while I was juggling a newborn and three other kids. We had started a family of our own. In addition to his stepdaughter and my three kids, we added two new babies within four years of getting married. If you're counting, that means we now have six kids combined. I had two major surgeries that required complete rest, two children who had PTSD and a host of issues from trauma in their early years. I was battling complex PTSD and traumatic brain injury symptoms from the strangulation, and we had major financial stress. My husband had his own issues, unhealthy ways of managing his emotions, battles with his ex, and anger struggles. We had so much stress. It was like we were just surviving, barely keeping our heads above the water, and at any given time, life was threatening to drown us. We survived all that, but our marriage suffered. My husband didn't know how to handle the stress, and I was triggered at every turn and couldn't always articulate what I was feeling or needing. I also had vivid nightmares that came quite often about my abusers. My husband urged me to get counseling, but little did he know that when you start therapy, it often gets worse before it gets better. As I started trauma therapy, some of my memories from the past resurfaced, which put even more on my emotional plate. In the marriage, I felt stifled and silenced, like my needs and wants were being ignored or minimized. I felt like my voice didn't matter or was disregarded. My husband and I desperately needed to communicate, but we were terrible at it. We would both get defensive and feel attacked when the other tried to express a frustration or need. We were incredibly codependent, but we didn't even know what that word meant yet. In August of 2019, I reached my breaking point. I couldn't take the mental poison at home and in my marriage anymore. It was affecting my physical and mental health. I felt like I couldn't handle life on a daily basis. I was trying to make changes, but also being triggered at every turn while attempting to raise six kids, manage a home, a career, and support my husband as he changed careers. Eventually, I snapped. I remember driving down the road, looking at an oncoming semi-truck, thinking that maybe I should just swerve and end it all. It wasn't that I didn't want to live anymore. I just couldn't live with all the pain and turmoil. My mind was breaking and so was my soul. In desperation, I went to my husband and told him, but because we hadn't yet worked on our communication, he was in his own state of overwhelm and loneliness in our marriage. I remember kneeling in the kitchen and expressing in a shaky whisper that things were really bad and I was thinking about taking my own life. He said something along the lines of, are you kidding me? Now I have to worry about this on my plate too? That moment, that reaction, sits in my memory as one of the most lonely moments I have ever felt. Obviously, I didn't end up taking my life, or I wouldn't be here today to talk to you about my amazing story of hope and restoration. What kept me going in that moment was my kids and the desire to be there for them for as long as I could, and the cross. I'm not here to preach at you, but this is a huge part of my story. When I think about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and all the pain that he endured so that you and I could have the chance to go to heaven someday, it makes me incredibly grateful and it focuses my attention on something other than my own pain. As I worked through the debilitating depression and anxiety that plagued my mind that winter, God was once again with me through every dark corner of the valley. And this is why I stayed round two in my marriage. I didn't stay because I I wanted to. 
I'm going to say that again. I didn't stay because I wanted to, because it was the right thing, or because I was a good Christian woman. I don't want to give the wrong idea here. I wasn't doing this in a healthy way. Rather, I stayed because I felt like I had to. I stayed because the lines between what I thought I should accept as a good wife and what made me uncomfortable were incredibly blurred. I stayed because it wasn't abuse, because he convinced me that this is how everyone talks when they're mad. I stayed because I'd married him, because I felt like I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't make him look bad. I stayed because I had no one who understood, because I didn't realize that it was okay to set boundaries around things that made me re-traumatized. I stayed because I hadn't found my voice. But I was responsible too. I had my own set of issues that I was working through. I was codependent and I would cater to him so that he wouldn't get upset. I was triggered out of nowhere and I would get panic attacks that I hadn't yet learned how to work through. I was depressed and anxious. I had little to no self-care and about the same level of self-confidence. What I needed was a major change in more than just my relationship. I needed to change my own actions too. So I worked on myself. I got a coach who helped me immensely and I set some very firm boundaries with my husband. On April 8th, 2022, I asked Reimer to leave the house. I had been trying to set boundaries for years and they weren't being respected. I felt like I had no other choice. He begged me to let him come home a month later and I allowed it, but only after he agreed to some conditions. One of those conditions was that we get marital counseling. He had resisted this for years and I knew that if we didn't get some outside help to assist us, we'd never make it. Our counselor was amazing. She helped us hear, understand, and truly listen to each other. She was a translator when we wouldn't hear what the other was saying and gave us helpful tips and advice, but then it was up to us to implement it. The next 10 months were so hard. It was a very slow process toward progress, and we argued a ton. I honestly thought we wouldn't make it. Finally, on our 10th anniversary in August of 2022, I felt a surge of hope for the first time in over eight years that our marriage might actually make it. Here we are two years later, and we are stronger and more in love than I ever thought possible. Because of the work that he and I have both put in to fight for our marriage, there has been a massive amount of healing that's happened for things like my husband's reaction to my suicidal thoughts. Slowly over the years, I have found my voice. I've learned not to let others shut me down or make me feel like my voice doesn't matter. It started in a whisper with Bose. Then again with Mal as I left and held strong through multiple protective orders. Later, I found it again as I set firm boundaries with my mom, my husband, eventually a toxic boss, and my children. My voice has grown stronger every time I've used it. During my healing journey, I felt strongly that I needed to change my name. Part of this was from fear. I was telling my story openly on social media, and I was terrified that Bose was going to get out of prison and find me. So I started using a pseudonym. But something was urging me to take an extra step to put the past behind me, to shut that door and look forward to a brighter future. So after weeks spent in prayer, I decided to change the name that I go by, and I chose Rhea Joy. I'd like to tell you that healing from my trauma has been linear and happened quickly. I'd like to bundle it all up in a pretty package with a nice, neat bow, but the truth is, none of this is pretty. My story is messy, and my healing has been messy. Sometimes I tend to think that I'm all good now. I'm happy. I'm vibrant. I'm joyful. I have energy. I'm all healed. But the truth is, I'm never going to be restored back to the exact way that I was before the abuse. Even as I wrote this, one day the bootstraps that I had been holding myself up with collapsed and I melted into sobs. It was hard going back through all that stuff. 
My nervous system still felt little bits of the trauma that I'd experienced. I had to remind myself that healing doesn't mean not feeling. I still went through all those things and the memories are still there, but rather than being open wounds that take over my life, now they're scars that only affect me in small ways and I get to help others every time I expose them. The hardest thing that I battle now is fear and hyper-awareness. Once you know that evil is out there, it can be easy to expect that it's everywhere. But if we do that, we're missing God's beauty, goodness, and promises. Now I have a life where I'm running toward uncertainty and embracing the unknown because now I know God can bring me through the fire into a vibrant life. He could do that for you too. I'm not preaching. I'm not preaching. I want to focus just a little bit on the healing part, though, because that's where the brightest light comes in. All the rest of that story, that was hard. That was dark. But the healing, that's bright. That's where my passion lies. In the place where I can say, there is a better life waiting for you if you just get through the hard part. As I started the healing process after so many years of trauma, I began EMDR therapy, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. God used that along with coaching, education, and mindset work to help me heal significantly from over a decade of trauma. Now I'm described by my friends and family as bubbly, vibrant, radiant, joyful, and full of life. I love this work that Jessica does to bring us together as women who can feel seen and heard through someone else's story. One of my biggest battles as I went through things in my marriage, and honestly, in all of my difficult times, is that I felt like I had to put on this plastic smile for everyone, especially at church and on social media. I love going to church, and I love sharing my message on social media, but the truth is, I think we're all afraid to show up as our real true selves, afraid of what others will think of us, of being judged, of not measuring up. So we show up and we pretend that everything's okay when it's not, that everyone, then everyone around us does the same. If we all just exposed our struggles, we'd know that we aren't alone. And that's why I started speaking up vulnerably about real things that I was going through so others would know that they're not alone. And I challenge you to do the same. There is a happy ending to this. In my marriage, we're stronger than ever, and he's here in true support today. Thanks, babe. I think he always wanted to support me. I think he always wanted to be a good husband and protect my heart. In the last couple years, things have changed so much that now I really truly feel his love and support for me. I feel that he cares and is rooting for me, is in my corner and is my teammate. We have actually started coaching other couples and we have a podcast episode that's launching tomorrow where we talk about our marriage story. So if you're struggling in your marriage, please know that there is hope. People can change if they decide that they want to. But the happy ending here today is that God has healed much of the wounds and bitterness from the pain that was inflicted on me and the hard things that I've gone through. I've grieved losses. I've processed through the darkest memories. I've faced fear head on over and over and over again. And I'm going to continue to do that because I know that that is a card that Satan plays that he can get me with but my God is bigger than my fear. Now I'm using my pain and experience to help others, which brings me true fulfillment, purpose, and joy. I've started speaking, coaching, writing, podcasting, and telling my story of hope and healing. If God can take my dark valleys and use them to shine a light for others, 
that's the ultimate happy ending for these chapters of my life. As I was writing this, I asked myself, what do I want to leave you with? It's important to me that you don't just show up here and, and hear this hard, dark story, and then I send you home, or Jessica sends you home. I want you to know that there's light at the end of all of this, no matter how much pain you've experienced. No matter how long and dark and ugly, how bad the struggle is or how deep the pain, there is hope and things can change. You can live a vibrant life and you can find your voice. No matter how long your voice has been silenced or how badly it's been silenced, you can find it. People tell me all the time, I'm so sorry that you went through that. But God has done an amazing work in my life, and I can honestly say, I'm not sorry. I know it may be hard to believe, but I am grateful for everything that I went through because it made me who I am today. It's allowed me to help so many people because I can relate, and it's given me so much compassion and empathy for others who are going through something similar. And now, I can honestly say, I'm thankful for the scars. Tell of who you are, so forever 
Cause without them I wouldn't know your heart And I know they'll always tell of who you are So forever I am thankful for the scars Well, ladies, I hope you were reminded by Rhea's story that God is bigger than any fear, any grief, any abuse, any impossibility that's part of your story. Today, Rhea is working to make a difference in the lives of others. She's now a transformation coach, speaker, author, and podcaster. In fact, she's one of the coaches working alongside Megan Babcock, who shared her story in our most recent episode. To learn more about Rhea and take advantage of all that she has to offer, please visit the links included in the episode notes. There is actually much more to her story than we could fit into one evening event. So I will be recording a follow-up episode with Rhea in the near future. And if you've got a question or topic you'd like covered, please just email me at jcampbell at calvarymac.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to tonight's episode. We hope that you were encouraged and that you join us next time for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com women. Calvary Mac.